and welcome to AIJCast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. We continue our 20th season look back with 20 episodes from the archives of AIJCast. And on this episode, we are revisiting part of our season one 2017 conversation with Marianne McKibben Dana. Marianne is a writer, speaker, free-range pastor, and coach. And her latest book, Just Out, is called Hope, a User's Manual. Marianne and I spoke back in 2017 in her home in the Washington, D.C. area. Marianne McKibben Dana, welcome to AIJCast. Thanks. It is great to be here. So you've got several what I would call vocations or vocational pieces of your life. There is, of course, the pastor piece. There is the writing piece. There is the speaking piece, which is somewhere in between those, and also this improvisation piece. And I'm curious, as you think about your life, can you see ways that have shaped those vocations, have brought those to to the forefront? I think the one that's always been with me is the writing piece. Okay, I've always been putting words to ideas and trying to figure out what I think about things. And I do that through the written word primarily. And so even as a preacher, I I feel like I'm a writer first. I, I do preach from notes sometimes, but I'm very much a manuscript word crafter kind of person. And so as I think about the threads, the, the writing has always been there. Can you think of a moment early on where you realized something about writing, about how it spoke to you or how you had a, it was your jam? I remember uh, I did journalism classes in high school and college, and and I, I loved the feeling of taking a lot of information, synthesizing it, interviewing people, putting it all together into a very tight product that people then would read and respond to. And I remember that really feeling very gratifying to to have that all come together in that way. And and that's really, I think, the place where the writing really, really took hold for me is is in high school and in college when I began to find my voice, as they say, mm-hmm. and and work out the way I was feeling about things on paper and and see where that would take me. Let, let's talk a little bit about your book, Sabbath in the Suburbs, and the, the genesis of that, and a little bit more about that book. And then I know you've done, that was the context in which I first met you. You were speaking at Columbia Seminary for a seminar I was attending and speaking about Sabbath in the Suburbs. Right. So that book came, I it came out about four years ago in 2012, and it really was my attempt to make some sense of an ancient practice and try to make sense of it for a modern context. The idea behind Sabbath keeping is to take one day each week when we are resting and we're not in the rat race of producing and and being in that kind of hamster wheel of Mm -hmm. production and and doing and going and all of the things that make up modern living. And I ended up writing the book that I wanted to read because I couldn't find what I was looking for. I was looking for guidance. Our, Our kids were young at the time and we really wanted to make this practice our own 
And, and we weren't willing to say, oh, you know, Sabbath is one of those cultural things that just doesn't apply anymore. We, right. we wanted, we, we felt like it had resonance for this time in this place. And so the book grew out of our experiment to really take this practice seriously and to take a year where we would spend one day each week, give or take. There were times when we <laughs> didn't make that happen, but that was our intention um, and really take Sabbath seriously and see what what does that even look like when you have children in diapers and right. those diapers need to be changed and that is work yeah. and all of those things. And uh, it's been wonderful to to see over the years people continue to read that book and, and invite me to come to gatherings like where we um, first encountered one another uh, in that uh, seminar at Columbia Seminary. Uh, because there's a hunger, there's a real hunger for um, a, a rhythm to life that feels sustainable, that feels faithful, that feels rich, and and isn't just about what we do and produce and and bring to the marketplace. Right, right. And so four or five years on, how how are you and your family with keeping Sabbath these days? It looks different now. Uh, my oldest daughter is fourteen, and I have an eleven year old daughter and a nine year old son. And the the days of being able to take an entire uninterrupted day of Sabbath are much fewer and far between. The language of Sabbath is still a part of our family's vocabulary. Mm. We it becomes more of a uh, kind of a Friday night has become a really a really key time for us. Um, there are times when that gets interrupted, but Friday night is a pretty sacred time. So maybe we have a little bit of of Jewish <laughs> Sabbath in our in our family's uh, structure at the mm-hmm. moment, um, and sometimes into Saturday morning. So we find it more in pockets of of practice, and it really is just time here, um, being with one another, going where our interest takes us. That it means you know uh, reading individually or playing a game together, and. So it it changes. And and one of the things I tell groups when I go and speak to them is that, you know, Sabbath looks different in different seasons of your life. Mm. When you have little kids, it seems impossible to try to make it work. When they get a little older, you have a little more control over their schedule. You do have to sometimes let them take the lead because, you know, little ones can be active and they want to be out and in the world. And that is what your Sabbath can look like. And and then as they get older, you can uh, let let them kind of do their own thing while you have your own kind of restorative moments during that practice and, and see where it takes you. But it, it changes. And one of the things I tell people is that we don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that, you know, there are just times when it just doesn't work. And, and rather than just say, well, I won't even try at least find a, a way to, to make that practice your own in a way that makes sense for you. And don't worry if it's not the way it is supposed to be in some conception in your mind of what perfect looks like. That gets us in trouble in the spiritual life, I think, in general. It does. And then there's also this thing of, I mean, Sabbath keeping is one of the Ten Commandments. Right. Which, it's not like we don't as a species, violate other of the commandments, but it's the one that we seem to have the easiest time right. ignoring. Yes. It's it's the 
cute commandment, right? It right. just seems it's... so quaint now in our world of text messages constantly coming at us and the 24-hour news cycle, which, yeah. I mean, calling it a 24-hour news cycle seems almost quaint, too. It seems like a 12-hour <laughs> or a 3-hour that the news it's a changes. a 30-minute news cycle. Exactly. Uh, you think about what was in the news a week ago, and it just seems like ancient history. Right. So this pace feels unsustainable to me and to a lot of people. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who teaches meditation, has called us the guinea pig generation mm-hmm. because he says, for us, the work week never really begins and it never really ends. It's right. just a constant unfolding of of things to do and and people to tend to. And those can be really wonderful, important things, but ultimately God provides an example of a rhythm that we are invited to follow. Mm. Do you see writing as an art? I do see writing as an art. I see it as an art that is accessible to all of us on on some level. Uh, and it, it took a while for me to, because writing is something we all learn to do in school mm-hmm. on, on some level, um, I, I think it's been something that I've I've often looked at and go, well, anybody can do what I do. <laughs> we all know how to write. And... So it's been a process for me to to embrace that this is part of my vocation and it is something that I uniquely provide, even mm. though many of us put words to paper or to computer screen. And so I think it's a both. I think that it's writing is, is an art that we can all participate in, um, but there are also people out there who are able to articulate for us ideas and yearnings that we didn't even know we had. And that is a particular gift and a vocation that I think uh, certain people also undertake. Who, when you think about writers, who are the ones that you draw from constantly or or return to? I am really loving Brene Brown right now. Uh, She might consider herself more of a teacher than a writer. Uh, That's where she started in, in academia and social work. Um, but her writing continually speaks to me and, and the ideas are rich, this idea of wholeheartedness Mm. and, and living a a vulnerable life and having that vulnerability be what is the source of our strength. Um, but she also articulates it in a very genuine way. You know how there are people that like when they realize that vulnerability and tenderness are important, that they kind of surrender and walk into it. A, that's not me. And B, I don't even hang out with people like that. Um, um, Anne Lamott is always a, a standby. I, I just yep. adore her, adore her work, and think she has a a singular gift for making uh, sacred things accessible and making the spiritual life something that is disarming mm-hmm. and not something that feels inaccessible to people who don't have a certain faith tradition. Well, when you talk about perfect as the enemy of the good, she, her whole faith life is about neither. That's right. That's right. She, she embodies that messy imperfection that I think is an inevitability in, in modern living. And yet we're constantly striving for if not perfection, at least the appearance of it. Yeah. And so as you... Curated perfection. Exactly. You know, you think about, uh, is is writing an art? It is. And you just think about the sheer volume of words that we are constantly 
a wash in and they are 140 characters. They are Facebook posts. They are Facebook comments, which uh-huh. have their own level of helpfulness or not. <laughs> and, um, and so for people who can, can sort through all of that in the language of the people and make that, um, make that shimmer, mm. it's really a, a wonderful, wonderful gift. I'm curious as you think about suburb, it's been about three years now that you transitioned from being a pastor in a congregation on a weekly basis, on a on a daily basis, to being what you refer to as a free-range pastor, that right. you will do leadership seminars, you will preach the occasional sermon, but you're not on point for one congregation all the time. Right. Has that shaped how you see Sabbath, how you practice Sabbath? Has it... Uh, I'm just curious about that. I'm about a year into that process myself, mm-hmm. and so I'm looking for advice also. <laughs> right. It is a challenge. It is a challenge to find the rhythm. You have kind of the John Kabat-Zinn effect where you your 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 time is much more your own. Yeah. And with free-range ministry comes great flexibility. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I love to do, I'm a recreational runner and I can do races on Sunday mornings mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And so the, the basic practice and the basic thing that I try to do to make Sabbath real is just to put it on my calendar. And it seems very mundane, but, um, when you have this kind of flexibility in your life and, and every weekend looks different, every week mm-hmm. looks different, just to look ahead and say, okay, where am I going to carve out the time? Right. And, and that has helped a lot mm. and to have those, those times set aside where you, just as you make your appointment to go to the dentist <laughs> or to visit a friend for lunch, mm. you, you put that on your calendar and that helps a lot. Marianne McKibben Dana back in 2017 on AIJCast. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment, but first a quick word. As always, I invite you to visit our website, AIJCast, which is where you will find information about our artists, including their news, information, and products. We've got links there to Marianne's books, which includes, of course, her latest Hope, a User's Manual, God, Improv, and the Art of Living, and Sabbath in the Suburbs. And, of course, we have so much, much, much more. And you can find it all at AIJCast.com. And now back to more of our 2017 conversation with Marianne McKibben-Dana. How did you first become interested in improv? What was your introduction to it? Take me down that path. Right. I did a lot of drama in high school and college. Okay. And as part of that, we would do improv exercises just to loosen up. Right. Like theater games. Yeah. Just kind of, you know, zip, zap, zop and other kind of things around a circle loosening up your body, loosening up your voice and getting the group kind of on the same page. And I sort of endured those (laughs) (laughs) because I, going back to preaching from a script, I love having the lines memorized, you know, when I would do a, a, a play or a musical and though that was when my, my anxiety was high until I got those lines learned. Mm. And then when I did, I felt like even if something went crazy wrong on stage, at least I had the script to go back. I had the words to go back to. Right. And improv totally disrupts that. There are, there is no script. 
Mm. There is only a group of people on stage, maybe a couple of chairs, and that's it. So I just felt like, well, that's something I can never do. Mm. I am a firstborn Presbyterian Girl Scout, uh, which means I I love having a good plan. (laughs) I'm prepared like a good scout. You know, I I want to I I want my backup plans to have backup plans. That is the way I, I like to live. And so I became interested in improv, not because it comes easily to me, but because it, it is very challenging for me. Mm. It, it kind of flies in the face of the way I normally like to operate. And yet the more I have delved into it, the more I realize that this is, this is life. You know, even when we come up with a, a beautiful plan or in, intention for our life, if we don't like the language of plan, <laughs> we set these intentions for ourselves or we, we have visions and life just happens. It it disrupts those. It illuminates them more fully for us. It it um, sometimes things work out better than we'd planned. Um, and the longer I live in the world, the more I realize that we're all improvising without even thinking about it. Right. You know, when you're driving to work in the morning and there's traffic, you find an alternate route, and you don't think about that as improvising. Right. But that is what you are doing, and we we do that without thinking, and so. As I have entered into this practice more and, and learned it and, and studied it, um, I have just been open to the ways that, that if we really think about it as a practice, if we think about it more intentionally, I think that allows us to improvise our lives more fully mm. instead of without, without not doing it unconsciously, but with great awareness mm. And a great playfulness, too. Mm. Um, I, I think it, it just holds tremendous potential for, for us as, as human beings. So, and, yeah, go ahead. Well, what, what brought you back to it? Because you talk about doing it in high school and college because you have to, because if you're going to be in drama, you got to do it. But there's a few years between high school, college, and, and right. returning to it more intentionally. So I'm curious... In a sense, if you don't like it, it, it was done. Right. Yes. But you came back to it. That's true. That's true. I think there are two things. One was a kind of head-based thing that I saw a YouTube video, and I show it to groups when I lead workshops, of Stephen Colbert doing a commencement address at Knox College back in 2006. Yeah, yeah. You know the one? Where I, you showed it. And when, yes, yeah. right. He's, he's talking about yes and. And that's the basic rule of improv, to accept what is offered on stage and to build on it. Well, you are about to start the greatest improvisation of all, with no script, no idea what's going to happen, often with people and places you have never seen before, and you are not in control. So say yes. And if you're lucky, find people who will say yes back. And I thought, wow, that's, that's God's stuff right? You know, Mm. things happen to us in our lives that we may or may not have chosen. And, and what I believe that God does with us, I mean, we can get into a whole separate conversation about God's will and God's plan and all of that stuff. But, but what I see in scripture, what I see in the working of the Holy Spirit is that these things happen, illnesses, difficulties in families, brokenness in relationships and good things too, wonderful things. And what God helps guide us to, to is that greater and. Mm-hmm. What, what's next? Um, and God is always calling forth 
um, wholeness for us. And that, to me, that wholeness is the and. Mm. So that was the first thing is just, it was kind of a head thing of, of listening to language that really resonated with me. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I need to delve into this, this improv stuff. Mm-hmm. The other thing was was having the chance to walk with a family while I was a pastor at the church that I served most recently, who went through a terrible health crisis with actually two of their sons. They Both sons had the same genetic illness, and both of them ultimately succumbed to that illness mm. at the age of eight, a couple, oh, couple of years wow. apart. Um, and there's all kinds of theology that gets thrown around in those situations. And people, I genuinely believe they want to be helpful when they say things because they feel like they need to say something. Right. And, and ultimately I felt like my job as a pastor a lot was just to stand in the way of a lot of it. The, Mm -hmm. the kind of, we'll understand the plan someday or God needed another angel. Oh, that was, that was yeah. the worst. That was the one that really got me. The, yeah. the one that the family really kind of bristled against the most was God never gives you more than you can handle, yeah. <laughs> which I remember sending the mother uh, a little, you know, image from the internet that says, God never gives us more than we can handle. God must think I'm a badass. <laughs> <laughs> and she loved that because she never thought that was helpful. So, right. okay, if those things are not what we want to say in times of tragedy, what do we say? Mm. And where I ultimately am landing right now is to think about God, not as one who plans it all out and calls a little boy to heaven because God needs another angel up there, mm. as if God has some kind of personnel shortage that needs to be solved that Right, way. right. Angel quit unexpectedly. Exactly, right. Yeah. So let's get, uh, you know, LinkedIn for... I mean, just <laughs> it, it, it defies logic or yeah. graciousness to to say these things. But again, people, I think, want to help, and this is where they what they come well, up I, with. I think they're ultimately trying to find meaning in the moment. Exactly, exactly. And so what where I find that meaning in the moment is thinking about a God who became known to us as a human being, right. as Jesus Christ, and... Uh, for Christians, that's that's how we know who God is. Right. And that means that God is willing to be in it with us, and I believe improvising with us, mm. collaborating with us, working together to bring about that yes and, mm. that we see as as Christians, see, see that yes and, the ultimate yes and, as the death and resurrection. Sam Wells has written a book about, about improvisation and the Christian story. And, and, uh, I think it's in that book that he says, you know, uh, we can block an outcome. We can sort of refuse to, to, to participate in it. We can run the other way, kind of like Jonah does, mm-hmm. or we can accept it, mm-hmm. which is just to say, this is reality and not really do much with it. Right. Or we can, uh, his language is over accepting, which I don't like that, that term, but what the idea is that we embrace it. We right. say, this is it. This is the world. Uh, this is reality. And now what are we called to do? Who Mm. are we called to be? And where is the wholeness that we can claim in this moment? And that changes moment by moment. So going back to the story of the family, where I saw God working is in this incredible medical team Mm. that would gather outside the hospital room every morning and say, what happened in the last 24 hours? Okay, this medication isn't doing what we need it to. Uh, what if we try this? Mm. And every day they're trying to get to that and, that yes and, 
uh, they were improvising. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that became a, a metaphor, uh, an image of, of the way God works with us to say, this sucks, mm-hmm. you know? God doesn't will cancer. God doesn't will these, these terrible tragedies and natural disasters. It, it's just part and parcel with a fallen world. That's mm-hmm. the best I can do with that at the moment. I don't know how else to, t- to think about it except that God is still with us mm. and God is willing to find that, that yes and with us. Walking with this family, yeah. it was one of those experiences, I'm sure you've had them as a pastor, where you just are basking in something that is so beyond you. Yeah. I, I, I feel like there was so little that I could do other than just notice and name what I was seeing them experience right. and, and work through. And one of the, the, the ongoing part of their story that continues is that they said, you know, we don't want to be defined by this. This is, uh, as I don't know if it was Frederick Beekner who said, you know, the worst thing is never the last thing, mm. which to me is an improvisational statement too, that there's always one more <laughs> and to right. uncover. Right. Um, and they said, we are a family that has love and graciousness to give. And so they entered in a very long convoluted process to adopt a a little boy who they've ultimately welcomed into their family. Mm. And that to me is the most profound yes. And I think I have, I've ever personally witnessed Mm. to bring that kind of, of goodness out of darkness that doesn't negate what has happened. It doesn't paper it over. It says, there's another chapter still to be written. Right. Well, there's there's still meaning in some cases to be wrestled from this. It's like the, that example of the family is so perfect. What What is the meaning in this? The meaning is that we have discovered the great love that we have. And right. how can that love continue? Right. As opposed to the kind of happy ever after vision that that we seem to the the mythology that we tend to tend to yes. uh, perpetuate yes and there are many possible ways they could live that love out it's not one of the things i love about improv and i think it it maps so well with the spiritual life and the what we see of god in scripture is that there are many possible outcomes mm-hmm. uh, i think it was anna carter florence at columbia seminary who said you know exodus the word Exodus, the title of that book of the Bible, literally means a way out. It doesn't mean the, the way, way out. It's a way out, yeah. And so thinking about anything that happens to us, you know, there are many, we have choices. We have many choices uh, as to how we respond. And that's true. You know, I think about uh, in the in the book that I am working on about, about improv and life and, and the spiritual life, I, I thought a lot about um, justice movements and, and the civil rights movement and, and how there are so many improvisational moves in that, in that movement to say, you know, we are, we are fighting for what is right. We are fighting for the liberation and freedom that we are entitled to by our birthright and by the, the promises of this nation um, and, and there was a very clear, uh, well, I don't know if how clear it was, but there, there was a, a process and a set of, of discernment. People were, were working out, um, how can we make this happen? But there was also these moments along the way where they, they couldn't have planned for it. it. It, things sort of come together 
And, and to me, that is, that is part of the improvisational journey too, to be open enough and to be um, centered enough to have your eyes open enough to say, ah, this is the moment we've been preparing for it. We've been organizing, we've been training, we've been doing all of these things. Now it is time that, that, that Kairos moment Mm. is upon us and it's time to act. When you, you, you do a, a lot of group work and, and, uh, leadership development, that, that kind of stuff. And you've brought some of these improv exercises into that process. Do you notice anything about how that work is made more effective or changed by that introduction? One of the things it does is it just really energizes people. And I think that as leaders, we can so often get out of a good place in our hearts, very, uh, a sense of our own kind of seriousness and self-importance. Right. And this life is, is full of opportunities to play. And I, I've, I've heard it expressed that we, we want to take our work seriously, our, our calls seriously, but take ourselves lightly. Mm-hmm. And, and that to me is the, the abundant life that Jesus offers us. Mm. I mean, Jesus, um, Jesus had a playful nature. Mm. I, I really believe the, the very first sign of Jesus in the gospel of John is turning water into wine. Right. It could have been some highfalutin sign where he healed a bunch of people or, you know, I mean, later he raises a guy from the dead. I mean, these are serious signs in the gospel of John. And the first one, first of all, is one he never intended to make Mm. because his, his mother was the one who said they've run out of wine at this wedding. Mm. And he's like, my, my hour has not come yet. And she kind of gives him the side eye and yes, it has, you know, and he, he, he improvises his way into a solution for them that is not doesn't have a lot of usefulness for the world at large. It just keeps the party going. Right. And that to me is a, a parable for us of when we're, we're trying to lead people through change. There's a lot of anxiety. Yeah. There never seems to be enough resources. And yet the very first sign right out of the gate is the party needs to go on. Marianne McKibben Dana on AIJCast. You can find her online at her website, MarianneMcKibbenDana.net. On our next episode, we continue our dig into the archives with part of our conversation with actor, playwright, improviser, Avery Sharp. AIJCast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. We can only do this work because of your support. So please do take just a moment and go to our website, AIJCast.com, and click on the link that says support. And we love to hang out with you in the social medias. We are there on many, many platforms where our handle is AIJCast. Our theme music comes from our house band, Marred Fame. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the always magnanimous Al Mudif, who has an interesting explanation for why he never hits the dance floor. It is a challenge to find the rhythm. And I'm your host, Martha Sanders, encouraging you to create some beauty of your own. And remember that the world isn't truly beautiful until it's beautiful for all. Until next time, I hope you'll paint your own canvas with justice and peace.